Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an overview of the U.S. getting dragged back into the tormented Middle East as a war between Israel and Hamas rages while Washington tries to focus on a far more serious war of Russian aggression that is destroying Ukraine and threatening Europe. Furthermore, the Secretary of State, who is in the Middle East, is warning that Azerbaijan may launch a military invasion of Armenia at any moment, further distracting the U.S. government. Joining us is Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. These assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. Currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he is the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, the winner of the Arthur C. Ross Award for Best Book in International Relations. And his latest book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. And we'll discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft, The Israel That Fought the Yom Kippur War No Longer Exists. Then we'll examine rising tensions on university and college campuses as pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian students clash, leading to the firing of some professors and the criticism of some administrators. Joining us to discuss the efforts by the Trump era's Kenneth Marcus, the former head of the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights, to revive Trump's executive order to pull federal funds from colleges who did not accept Marcus's edict that criticism of Israel equals anti-Semitism, is Catherine Frankie, a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia University. Among the nation's leading scholars writing on law, sexuality, race, and religion, she is the author of Wedlocked, The Perils of Marriage Equality, and Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Slavery's Abolition. She is a member of the Board of Directors for Palestine Legal, which provides legal resources for activists advocating for Palestine across the United States. And joining us now is Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. These assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. He's currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he's the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, which was the winner of the Arthur C. Ross Award for Best Book in International Relations. And his latest book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, The Israel That Fought the Yom Kippur War No Longer Exists. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Simon. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Stephen. And it does seem that the United States is getting dragged back into the tormented Middle East as this war between Israel and Hamas rages, while Washington tries to focus on a far more serious war of Russian aggression that is destroying Ukraine and threatening Europe. 
And furthermore, the Secretary of State, who is in the Middle East, is warning that Azerbaijan may launch a military invasion of Armenia at any moment. So what does this say then, Stephen, about the distracted U.S. government? Well, I think the U.S. government is, um, you know, rather more capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time than, than many people think. But just to clarify, uh, the United States' involvement now in the Gaza crisis has been very visible. The United States has been very uh, active um, in insofar as it has dispatched uh, the Secretary of State uh, to uh, Israel and to the region uh, has made a number of uh, important public uh, uh, statements, including a, a presidential speech uh, in which uh, he said that um, the United States has Israel's back. Uh, but at the same time, he said in that speech that the thing that differentiates the U.S. and presumably Israel from uh, Hamas is that uh, the U.S. and Israel comply with the laws of war, which is to say uh, neither country targets civilians. So there's been a lot of rhetoric and there's been a lot of travel uh, and, uh, and intensive consultations. Uh, and, and there has been military movement. I mean, the United States has sent a carrier strike group to the Eastern Mediterranean as a deterrent to Iran. But when you take all these factors together, um, you don't actually get the kind of intensive involvement, uh, for example, that the United States carried out in 1973 during that uh, Yom Kippur War when the United States resupplied uh, the Israeli army in the middle of the war and threatened uh, a nuclear uh, confrontation with the Soviet Union if the Soviet Union was to intervene in that in that war. That's I think you could call that intervention or the Iraq war certainly intervention. But what's happening right now is more of a standoffish posture, which I think owes to a, a view in Washington that there's little practical influence that the United States can have right now on Israeli actions. Well, I spoke uh, the other day on Thursday with Michael Kimmage, who's got an article at Foreign Affairs that makes the argument that the great powers, the US, Russia, China and Europe, can neither can resolve or contain the situations around the world as middle powers and local actors exert themselves more boldly, leaving the great powers distracted and often helpless on the sidelines. In other words, the opposite of the guns of August. Do you, do you buy that scenario, Stephen? Well, I, I think that could be uh, uh, applied to many other epochs uh, in uh, you know, American diplomatic history or, 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 or really global international relations. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's a famous and, uh, you know, within, within the governments of great powers, lamentable fact that um, uh, the tail wags the dog in international relations. That is to say, local powers frequently have much more intense interest in the outcome of local conflicts uh, than, uh, the, than the great powers do. This is not a function of uh, a new um, international order. It really reflects a uh, longstanding uh, reality 
in international relations. But the example that I mentioned, which Secretary of State Tony Blinken just warned about, that Azerbaijan is poised to invade Armenia, nobody obviously can stop Aliyev if he wants to do it, and he's got you know, it seems like Putin is more on his side than he is on the Armenian side because he's laundering Russian oil through Azerbaijan and Turkey supports Azerbaijan, as does Israel. So mm-hmm. what do we do? What's the United States do if tomorrow we wake up and Azerbaijan is invading uh, Armenia? Well, you know, I think what the United States does uh, is a function of the perceived interest uh, of the United States in, in the events and the outcomes uh, in, in, in any given contingency. And really, uh, at the end of the day, what's the overpowering U.S. interest uh, in um, uh, the results of a conflict between Azerbaijan and, and Armenia? Uh, you know, the United States may have a preference for one outcome or another, but whatever the outcome is, uh, how would it affect core U.S. strategic interests? And, and that's, a, that's a question that's, uh, I, you know, difficult to answer uh, because there probably isn't much in effect. So uh, that disparity um, between the, the violence on the ground uh, and the stake the United States has in the outcome uh, will shape um, uh, the U.S. approach to that, to that conflict. But if you were on the National Security Council staff today, and you mentioned earlier, Stephen, that the U.S. can walk and chew gum at the same time, you know, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of options. Uh, for uh, for Azerbaijan and Armenia? No, for, for uh, the, US, the U.S. to oh. in any way defend or help defend Armenia. And we know that there's a pretty active diaspora here in the United States. I mean, there'll be a lot of outrage, just as there is uh, in terms of those that support Israel. Yeah, but uh, I'm I'm no expert in American domestic politics, but, uh, you know, I venture to say that, you know, the Armenian uh, diaspora in the United States doesn't have anywhere near uh, the clout, the electoral clout, uh, that uh, American Jews do um, in, in, in the U.S. system. So, you know, there's, there's such a big difference, really, between their respective, uh, um, you know, political influence on, on, on U.S. politics that I don't, I, I don't think that the two are really comparable. And in any case, uh, one does have to ask what the United States could reasonably do that would be consistent with the stake the United States actually has in that conflict. And um, uh, it's not clear. Uh, Would the United States deploy troops to Armenia? Would uh, the United States launch airstrikes against uh, Azeri forces uh, to try and stymie, uh, you know, their military operations, their advance into Armenian territory? Uh, It's, you know, when you when you look at it that way, when you ask, okay, so what specifically would the United States do? Uh, the answers, you know, tend to suggest, well, you know, there 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 aren't really any good options. Any good options consistent again with the scale of U.S. interest. 
We're going to take a brief station break now, and we'll be back in continuing the conversation with Stephen Simon. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we are continuing a conversation with Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as a senior director for Middle East and North African affairs, and also on the NSC staff on counterterrorism and Middle East, Middle, East security, Middle East security policy. His latest book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, and he's an artist. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, The Israel That Fought the Yom Kippur War No Longer Exists. So let's turn then to the current war between Israel and Hamas. And my understanding is that the Israeli strategy or determination or endgame is to defeat Hamas militarily. And Hamas has like 10,000 sort of A-list fighters and another 20,000, so a total of about 30,000 as far as I understand. So they want to destroy both the Hamas military and the Hamas government for, for I don't know what its numbers are or how that operates. But And at the end of the day, some suggestions are that if they succeed, they're basically going to, going to say to the Arab world, like Qatar, for example, that has the money you can have it. Is that your understanding of, of what the strategy is? So, uh, yes. Uh, the Israeli war aims, uh, as they're currently conceived, uh, are to uh, destroy uh, Hamas's military capacity and remove uh, the Hamas leadership from uh, any authority and control that they might have uh, in in Gaza, and and they will do that, or they intend currently to do that by killing them all. Uh, that's um, uh, that's how the Israeli government has formulated uh, its its approach. If it succeeds uh, in doing this, it will have to hand off Gaza to some other entity who can main, maintain control, and most importantly prevent a resurgence of Hamas in that territory. Uh, Thus far, whatever the Israeli thinking is uh, in its inner councils about whom to hand off Gaza to uh, uh, has not been revealed. Um, Arab states will almost certainly play a role, but but the international community will have to be uh, involved. Um, And and 
probably in the form of the UN, uh, at least in terms of UN uh, authorization for countries that are sufficiently concerned to get involved uh, with the reconstitution of Gaza, um, uh, securing it from a resurgence of Hamas, and maintaining a close contact with the Israelis at the same time so the Israelis don't come back in. Uh, ultimately, whoever assumes that responsibility, whether it's some contact group of Western countries plus Arab countries, let's say Saudi Arabia and Egypt, um, uh, perhaps Qatar would be uh, involved. Um, what, whatever group that looked like, they would ultimately need to restore local Palestinian control to Gaza. And this is where things get complicated because to do that, um, these countries, uh, Israel, the Palestinians themselves, will have to uh, embark on a new set of elections, reinvigorate the Palestinian Authority, and extend the control, the legitimate governance of the Palestinian Authority to uh, uh, to Gaza at the same time as outsiders uh, fund uh, the reconstruction of what will be a comprehensively devastated um, uh, area uh, with essentially no critical infrastructure uh, to sustain to sustain the life of, of Gazan uh, society. So it's an enormous challenge, but the but. But the bottom line is the Israelis will have to hand this off to some constituted authority with, with, with the legitimacy and international consent to manage uh, the situation in Gaza pending uh, a revival of, of a Palestinian authority in that heavily damaged and traumatized place. So, Stephen Simon, what do we know then about the Gazan population and their attitudes towards Hamas. In other words, when you mentioned that, you know, there had to be some guarantee that Hamas wouldn't come back, how deep are the connections between the populace and this, you know, Islamo-fascist, religiously-based government that is repressive by any measure? Well, you know, in a, in a location like Gaza, uh, you're not going to be able to get uh, really reliable polling results. You know, so, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation about this. I think it's probably fair to say that um, as a whole, the populace is not suicidal and uh, they probably do not want to uh, die. Uh, defending uh, the Hamas leadership against uh, an Israeli onslaught, uh, especially under current circumstances where that onslaught was triggered by, uh, you know, a Hamas enormity that basically made Gazans hostage to this, um, you know, extremely, you know, provocative and horrifying initiative taken, taken by the leadership. So, my guess is that if they're not suicidal and they really want 
just to have normal lives and, 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 and to stop dying in horrible circumstances, you know, under tons of rubble, essentially, they uh, then, and I think this is at just as human beings under tremendous duress, is surely this is what they want. Um, uh, they want to be free of, 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 of this uh, terrible violence and, and have some kind of security, sanity, um, uh, uh, you know, in, reinfused into their daily lives. Uh, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to, uh, you know, support Hamas in some kind of maniacal or robotic way. Um, uh, the, the danger of a Hamas revival uh, lies in um, the in anarchic conditions that will prevail unless there's serious um, multilateral uh, management of, of 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 the post-combat phase uh, in Gaza, and and that means accepting responsibility, and that means some group of countries under the authority of the United Nations um, uh, to take responsibility and accept, in, a, in effect, the handoff of Gaza from Israel uh, to them. So that's, that's the key to impeding or just ruling out, making impossible uh, a Hamas resurgence. But the, the longer anarchic conditions you know, exist there, the greater the danger that um, uh, radicals will reemerge. So there's an article at The Atlantic by Hussein Ibish that's arguing that Israel is walking into a trap in Gaza. I take it you don't buy that. Uh, they might well um, uh, be walking into a trap uh, if, and, and perhaps uh, uh, Dr. Ibish is, is correct on that. Um, but that is a risk that the Israelis are willing to take right now. And I'm really, personally, I'm not in the mode of uh, doing anything but thinking through the implications rather than, um, in a sense, advising, you know, Israelis about, you know, whether they're doing something smart or doing something stupid. The fact is, if they are almost certainly uh, going to enter Gaza on the ground with these uh, very far-reaching objectives. Uh, and uh, they may well be themselves concerned that they're walking into both uh, a military and a diplomatic uh, trap because there are dangers uh, in both of those domains. But they've mobilized 350,000 reservists on top of, you know, a standing army of 170,000. Now, you know, to be sure, some of that capacity uh, is going to be allocated to defending uh, the north of Israel should uh, Lebanese Hezbollah uh, become involved in this, in this conflict. But a mobilization on that scale uh, with... Um, uh, a succession of public statements from the new war cabinet, from the unity, national unity government, not just, you know, the sort of right-wing government that had, you know, been in place when the war started, but this new government, this statements to the effect that 
um, you know, Hamas will be eliminated. I don't think you can. Um, we have the luxury, really, of second guessing uh, what the Israelis uh, are doing or the wisdom of it uh, or the practicality of it. The fact is, it's likely to happen. So then what? Well, wouldn't that indicate then, Stephen, that unless the Israelis achieve their objectives quickly, this could get very problematic for them? Uh, uh, Oh, yeah. Um, I I agree with you, uh, Ian, completely uh, on that score. Uh, The longest one of these wars has, has lasted is 51 days. And um, I think it's it's more or less the time frame the Israelis anticipate uh, to do what it is they think they need to do in in Gaza, and their efforts to get civilians out of the way uh, is in part to reduce uh, the collateral damage, the civilian deaths, the non-combatant deaths uh, in Gaza, um, and and in the process also speed up. Uh, the operation, because the the ground will have been cleared. Well, we started out talking about the role of the United States government in not just this war, but in the bigger war, and I think the far more significant war going on in Ukraine and the possibility of a war breaking out between Azerbaijan and Armenia. What do you make of the U.S. government? We don't have a Congress. At least we don't have a House of Representatives. Yeah, well, you know, the, the amount of material that the United States is supplying uh, with Israel to Israel is not all that large. I mean, it, it, it tends in some respects to overlap with the kind of support that the United States is providing to Ukraine in terms of, you know, what the military calls consumables, uh, you know, mostly ammunition. Um, because these these wars are firepower intensive, and you know uh, militaries run out of ammunition really quickly. So that's um, uh, but but that's the kind of thing that can be mass produced quickly. So I don't I don't think that that's that's a problem. Otherwise, uh, the United States contribution uh, is in the form of these. Uh, big deployments of naval vessels, which circle the globe constantly, uh, no matter what. And the United States has, um, I, 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 I think, um, a dozen carrier battle groups. Now they call carrier strike groups. But, it, it, uh, it, you know, so it's got plenty, you know, to go around. It's got, um, generally speaking, one or two, I think that's the case right now, in the Persian Gulf. Uh, there's one in the Mediterranean, which is in the Eastern Med. That's the USS Ford. And then you've got all these others um, uh, that are uh, patrolling in the North Atlantic and, of course, in the South China Sea uh, and, and the Western Pacific, you know, more generally. So I think there's enough to go around. And if the United States needed uh, to move that carrier in the Eastern Med to the Pacific, it could do so, you know, pretty quickly because it's also, of course, sitting right next to the Suez Canal. So, um, you know, that that carrier battle group could be in the Indian Ocean and then into the Pacific, uh, you know, really 
uh, very, very quickly. So I, I, I guess I'm going into all this detail just to suggest, well, you know, um, uh, the United States can handle whatever is going on between the Israelis and, and, and Gazans without very much of a distraction uh, from, um, uh, from its commitments on the European front and um, its preparations for, you know, right. managing increased tensions uh, but, in the Pacific. But Stephen, just sorry, we're going to wrap up here in a minute. What about the House cutting off funds to Ukraine? Isn't that inevitable? Well, you know, if if the United States cuts off arms to Ukraine, um, I, the Ukrainians are going to, you know, face a much harder fight unless the European states uh, pony up, you know, make up the, the difference uh, lost by the United States dropping out of the out of the fray, uh, they can't conceivably do that. And I think they'd be motivated to do that, but it would not be easy for them. And it would be, I think, destabilizing for them politically uh, if they had to do that, uh, you know, in the absence of, of U.S. involvement. So uh, I think the, the, the issue in the House now is, is terribly dangerous uh, for these um, you know, larger strategic interests that the United States has uh, globally, both in Europe and in the Pacific. It's terrible. Well, Stephen Simon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, you're most welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as a senior director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. And these assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. He's currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he's the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, which was the winner of the RCC Ross Award for Best Book in International Relations. And his latest book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, The Israel That Fought the Yom Kippur War No Longer Exists. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining rising tensions on university and college campuses as pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian students clash, leading to the firing of some professors and the criticism of some administrators. Yes, some is good and some is bad. Brother, keep your faith on hand on every side. country I come from is called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there, the laws to abide. And that the land that I live in has God on its side. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Catherine Frankie, who is a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia University, among the nation's leading scholars writing on law, sexuality, race, and religion. She's the author of Wedlocked, The Perils of Marriage Equality, and Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Slavery's Abolition. And she's a member of the board of directors of Palestine Legal, which provides legal resources for activists advocating for Palestine across the United States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Frankie. Thank, thank you, Ian. So uh, things are heating up on campuses. And in fact, there's an effort underway to get the education department to weigh in. And uh, during the Trump administration, there was an effort led by Kenneth Marcus. He led the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights under the Trump administration. He now leads the Brandeis Center. And essentially, they were going to impose a kind of censorship, really, on it, discussions about the Middle East, and particularly Israel versus uh, Palestine, to the point where there was only one official narrative, and that is the right-wing Israeli narrative. So is it likely that this regime will come back, that it was shut down under Biden, but now there are pressures from right-wing Jewish lobbies here in the United States to revive Kenneth Marcus's Office of Education in the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights? Well, I don't know that the forces that are behind Marcus ever let up. This has been their um, project for some time to adopt a particular definition of anti-Semitism, which includes the criticism of the state of Israel. Um, and it it's not surprising that this has come back as a, a more top of the news issue with the uh, war in Palestine and, and Israel right now. Um, you know, universities stand as beacons, whether they're public or private universities, and whether they're in Israel, um, Palestine, or anywhere. Um, for debate and hearty debate around the most difficult questions of the day. And our commitment to that value is tested most intensely in moments like this. And we are certainly feeling it on our campus at Columbia and in campuses around the country. So it is my hope that the U.S. government doesn't, uh, through the Department of Education, does not um, uh, engage in the kind of censorship that the Marcus proposal would um, impose and uh, inhibit our ability to really talk in, in, in difficult ways about difficult subjects. Um, and there are many of them, and, and certainly the, the legitimacy of what is going on uh, in, in Israel and Gaza right now is, is one of them. So a lot of Jewish student groups are very critical of the National Students for Justice in Palestine. What is the problem they have with them? And are you familiar with this group? I'm very familiar with that group. They uh, Students for Justice in Palestine um, exist on many campuses across the country. And what they've tried to do uh, in various ways is have a kind of presence on our campuses um, for the idea of Palestinian sovereignty or dignity. And um, every campus certainly has a well-funded um, group, Hillel or others, that is there for Jewish students or students who are aligned or allies of the state of Israel. 
and I think SJP, as we call it, the Students for Justice in Palestine, um, is, is designed to be a counter voice or another voice that represents a different view than that that would um, come from the more, um, I would say, Zionist organizations. And sometimes their uh, statements come off as extreme. And I would say that's true really in any, um, anybody taking any position in this area is that the standing up for one side, if you will, um, sounds offensive to the other side. Um, and I, and it I, this is a time certainly for us all to just take a breath, just take a breath and kind of identify with the forms of human suffering on either side of the border in, in Israel and in Gaza, because it is a horror. Um, and I think the students in uh, the with SJP have been trying to give voice to the dignity of Palestinian lives, just as the other students on our campuses um, who are more identified with the Israeli side have been um, uh, have been speaking and mourning the losses of Jewish and Israeli lives, which is also a horror. So, Catherine, what happened uh, a week ago in Times Square with the New York chapter of Democratic Socialists of America having a, a demonstration which offended AOC, who's also a member of the DSA, and others. What exactly were the pro-Palestinian demonstrators doing that was so egregious? Well, I can't. I, I certainly won't defend what was said nor um, represent it perfectly. But I think some of the statements that have been made by activists who are associated with DSA, but also SJP and other organizations, is to say that the Israelis have brought this upon themselves that the, the violence and the, um, the real suffering created by the uh, Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territory and Palestinian people at its most extreme in Gaza was likely to result in, the, in Hamas fighting back at some point, that they felt like they had no alternative but a military alternative. And um, the world, uh, it looked away uh, in under this account, from the daily extreme suffering and death of Palestinians, particularly in Gaza. And in this moment, um, very little attention by our, our elected officials and I think some of our university administrators is being paid to the suffering of the uh, uh, Gazan or Palestinian civilians, but an enormous amount of attention is being paid to the Israeli civilians killed um, or, or taken uh, captive as hostage as hostages in this uh, in this terrible war. And so this is a I think a kind of extreme view that it's Israel's fault that uh, that they were attacked by Hamas. I don't um, I, I wouldn't frame it that way, but I think that's the view that people are objecting to that Israel brought this upon themselves. Well, in trying to cover this, Catherine, you know, I do talk to Israeli peace activists and on the political left, their political left in Israel has shrunk considerably. And now you have a far right government, although a lot of people have been demonstrating against it, particularly uh, Netanyahu's power grab over the judiciary. But so much of television and even on the on the liberal uh, MSNBCs, you basically have largely, I wouldn't say they're all right-wing voices, but a lot of right-wing Israelis and a lot of understandably angry Israelis. 
so you've got the Israeli right basically talking about crushing their enemies and preserving the status quo and some also using this tragedy for fundraising. And you don't have a lot coming from the Israeli left. I often speak with Gideon Levy, for example, uh, who is with Aharetz on the editorial board, who's been a champion of, and has written a book, The Punishment of Gaza, etc. But on the Israeli left, it's clear that you can both love Israel and have compassion for Palestine. But on the other side, is there equally people do you find on the Palestinian side that can love Palestine and also have compassion for Israelis? Absolutely. And having compassion for Israelis is different from having a critique of the state of Israel and its government. Um, I have many Palestinian friends, both within um, the occupied territories and here in the U.S., who are heartbroken at the at the uh, violence um, and murder of Israeli civilians and the the capture and kidnapping of Israeli civilians. Um, and and I think if at some point, I think many people would agree that we ought to just get our governments out of the way and people could actually find a way to peace um, in that region. Um, so it's it's entirely possible. And it is a fact that many, many Palestinians, um, uh, if not most, hold great compassion for individual Israelis. It's what is done in their name by their government that they have a, a problem with. So is there a way there to identify a strain of religious fundamentalism that's both in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam that's coming to play here? The biggest supporters of the right-wing Israeli project are so-called Christian Zionists and the religious right in this country, which has obviously huge support for Donald Trump, even though he's effectively a heathen. They love him, and uh, you've got the Dominionists and other sects that are very similar to the religious nationalists that dominate Netanyahu's government now. And then there's no question that Hamas is a religious nationalist government, and you've got its support from Iran that's run by a really noxious religious government which are essentially a bunch of thieves in clerical robes, but they're quite disgusting in the way they've crushed the young women in Iran and their militant groups like the Revolutionary Guards Corps and the Kurds, etc., are absolutely brutal. And in many ways, they've, they've passed on that brutality to Hezbollah, which is called the Party of God, and Hamas, which is Arabic for zeal. So it's to me... I say a curse on all of them, a plague on all the houses. What do you say? Well, I am not a member of any of those three religions. And so I, it's not my job to pass on their legitimacy. I will say that there, through time, there has been enormous human suffering and death in the name of religion across the world. And, um, uh, and Christians, um, Jews, and Muslims have certainly participated in that. That this is a, a land that is holy to all three of the Abrahamic traditions, so it does not um, surprise me that um, religion is infusing so much of this politics. But there are plenty of more secular Muslims, Jews, and Christians in this region who I think would chart a very different course, who identify ethnically 
with those religious traditions or, or cultural traditions, um, but not in that kind of extreme way that we see the likes of some members of the Israeli government, Hamas, um, uh, and, and some evangelical Christians um, as well. But how does the Holy Land end up being so blood-soaked? I mean, what is that transgression between the religions of peace and love and the activities of, of terrorists and murderers? Well, I'm not sure I would, I would identify religion as lying at the core of the problem here and what is motivating the, the just ongoing violence and suffering in this region. There's a colonial enterprise here. The, the Jews of Europe were exported, basically, to, um, to Palestine, traditional historical Palestine, um, uh, where people were already living. And there were Jews there, where there were Muslims there, there were Christians there in, in Mandate Pal Palestine um, in 1947. And so a, a certain kind of European problem was offloaded to this region, um, and it was completely foreseeable that uh, that there would be fighting among those people where um, those who had lived there for generations, it was their indigenous home, um, would resist the importation of a whole new population. And so that's so much of what we are living with now is really a European problem that was offloaded onto the Middle East. And religion certainly um, inflames that problem, but um, I would trace so much of this problem back to uh, the resolution at the end of World War II, where there was no real way um, uh, anticipated or planned for to manage these populations living in the same space, making very strong claims to that space. Um, and so I, I, in a way, locating all of the problem with religion, I think, is a misnomer. Well, ironically, it was uh, Jewish terrorism in part drove the British out, the Ergun and uh, the Stern Gang. And what you're talking about is the terrible irony that in order to solve a European Jewish refugee problem, an Arab refugee problem was created. And as it's often said, uh, the problem with this region is that there's too much history and not enough geography. But there is, of course, this stalemate over the two-state solution, which has been systematically eroded largely by none other than Benjamin Netanyahu himself. There is no stated end game for the Israeli right. And the Israeli left, as I say, has shrunk somewhat, and they're still clinging to the idea of a two-state solution. So how much do you think adult supervision is needed here? And the extent that it is needed, the US has played an active role but has so far been spectacularly unsuccessful. Well, I would take issue with one of the ways you framed the, the problem or the conundrum of Israel-Palestine. I'm not sure I would see it as a European refugee problem so much as a European um, anti-Semitic um, uh, ethnic cleansing problem. Um, in so many respects, the creation of the state of Israel was about Europeans kicking Jews out of Europe to the place where they belonged, which was somewhere else. And um, and so there's and this. There's, this was just after the Holocaust. There was that. that there absolutely. was that that much cynicism in Europe. I know there were pogroms in Poland of all places in 1947, but I wasn't aware that that was the driving force. 
behind it. I thought there was a certain amount of guilt in amongst the Europeans about the fact that they had, you know, ignored the fact that six million people were being gassed. Right, but the six the the Holocaust was a was a state project, um, and the 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 dispossession of Jews from Europe was, certainly took place well before World War II. It began well before World War II began. Um, so I I. I, to connect, I think it's important to connect the conflict today to anti-Semitism that in many respects finds its roots in Europe. And I have to be honest, I forgot your earlier question. And your, your well, I was just saying that the right wing in Israel doesn't have an end game. Uh, ah, and you, that the left, uh, in terms of the peace movement, has, has been weakened over the years. Netanyahu has been largely the architect of not having an end game, except perhaps making life so miserable for the Palestinians that somehow they'll slink off into Jordan or somewhere. The same yeah. situation exists today. What happens to the civilians in Gaza? Where do they go? So that the US has played an active role, but they've been spectacularly unable to bring about adult supervision. Well, the U.S. has played an an outsized active role insofar as it has through enormous um, foreign aid and military aid um, for many, many years has basically propped up the Israeli government. It made it possible for Israel to hold the line, if not move the line, into Palestinian territory such that we see those maps of the shrinking and shrinking of Palestinian territory, notwithstanding the Camp David Accords and other agreements between the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis. Um, I think the Netanyahu government absolutely has an end game in mind, and that is the complete capture of all of the territory that is the uh, occupied that Israel occupies now as as sovereign Israeli territory to the point that they don't even refer to it um, officially um, in maps or in the way they discuss the West Bank right. and yep. the areas that were that were designated for Palestinian control. They call that um, Judea, Judea and Samaria. Right, so, but what happens? What happens to the the Palestinian people? What, what's the end game? Well, I mean, I'm not part of the Israeli government, but I certainly imagine their plan is that the Gazans would would end up in Egypt and go through um, the southern gate into Egypt. And the the uh, Palestinians that remain in the other parts of the occupied territories would would end up in, in Lebanon, Syria, um, and the places where they are now in refugee camps. And, I, you know, the Israeli government doesn't see it as their project to tend to the needs of the Palestinians. They see that as the other countries that are surround um, the Eretz Israel as, um, as, uh, as absorbing those individuals um, and making them their own. And as I'm sure you well know, Ian, many of those Palestinians for generations have lived in places like um, Jordan and, and Lebanon without legal status. Sure. They've been demonstrating in the last few days, too. So just in the last minute, uh, we, here we are talking about the tortured history, <laughs> which is inescapable, I know. But let's go back to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibits discrimination against students based on shared ancestry and national origin. And that includes Jewish students and those from other religious groups, as well as students from Israel and Palestine. That is a statement coming from the Office of Civil Rights uh, on uh, X. So is there any way to invoke that again or to remind people as this campus frictions and tensions grow? Well, Title VI certainly does regulate those sorts of forms of bias or hate crimes or discrimination on campus, and it's um, neutral as to which groups it protects. It protects all groups. 
Um, I think I know from my own Palestinian students and those who I, I hear in other campuses is that they're feeling um, the their university uh, top administrators identifying almost entirely with the suffering of Jews and Israelis and saying uh, almost nothing about the suffering of uh, Palestinian uh, Muslim and Arab people in this in this horrible, horrible war. And that is not to say we should elevate any of those lives over any others, but they're frightened. Um, and they feel that they don't belong on their campuses. And I don't think that Title VI is going to solve that problem. None of these problems are going to get solved by law. I think we need to sit down and, and talk to each other in new ways about and acknowledge through, um, through a, a careful kind of dialogue each other's pain um, and do so in a way that doesn't mean you have to surrender the rightness of, of identifying with the pain of your people too. Um, and I'm, I'm disappointed that our university leadership across the country and our political leadership across the country are not modeling how to do that, but instead um, are issuing statements um, and are funding only one side um, of, of this terrible, terrible conflict that we know will not get resolved through war and violence. It hasn't worked in the past. It won't work now. Um, yeah, it'll just increase human suffering on both sides, the Israeli and the Palestinian side. And that I just find heartbreaking. So just in closing, though, Catherine, since universities are all about education, is there any way to educate those on the right to the extent that we've been talking about what the real project of the Israeli rights about and that is insupportable particularly and now that you have this right-wing nationalist government in Israel strutting its stuff and on the left you know you one one wonders why young American leftists and European leftists can't make the distinction between supporting the rights of the Palestinians and fighting against the oppression from the occupying power at the same time recognizing the odious nature of of this sort of islamo-fascist nature of groups like hezbollah and hamas well your question is is there any hope um of educating people on either extreme and i, I you know i'm a lifelong educator so i'm committed to that project I teach short-term classes for high school teachers and college teachers to learn the history of, it, of uh, citizenship and nationality in Israel and Palestine in the hopes that we can know and appreciate that history better than we do now. And I, I, um, I wish all of us would take that time to learn that history, to understand why we've ended up where we have today and that war is just not going to solve that problem. And I hope that that's the case that we, that we can do that learning on the left and on the right, rather than resorting to um, stereotypes, um, uh, revenge, um, and um, more emotional, I would say, ways of thinking this problem. Well, Catherine Frankie, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian, and you you be in peace. <laughs> Likewise. I hate having to talk about this stuff, but uh, it is all exploding before our eyes, and it's deeply, deeply tragic. And I thank you. Thank you so much. You take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Frankie, who's a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia University. Among the nation's leading scholars writing on law, sexuality, race, and religion, she's the author of Wedlocked, 
The Perils of Marriage Equality and Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Slavery's Abolition, and she is a member of the Board of Directors of For Palestine Legal. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.